Oh, don't start just yet. I'm, I'm just finishing my cornflakes. Welcome back to the Leftfield Thinking Podcast. This week, I hope you've bought drinks and snacks because it's a bit of a marathon. I'm delighted to be joined by the head coach of Dartmouth College and all-round Irish gent, Mark Egner. I was really fortunate to meet Mark in Dublin at the start of 2020, and the year has been downhill ever since. But we've kept in touch. He's a passionate learner and has a wonderfully warm insight on coaching. I hope you enjoy our chat. As, as an avid listener of the podcast, I shouldn't need to actually have to ask the questions. You can just ramble and go through the talking points, no? I would, but, you know, there's been a bit of a, a gap since the last episode, Will, that I'm not quite as familiar with the layout as I used oh, to be. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I've had to familiarise myself with the questions as well. Hey, and when I interview people, they get promoted. So, I mean, look at Andrew Wilson. He's just got head coach of Canada. Yeah. So, yeah. Big news earlier this week. Fair play to him. So we're going to jump straight in. Uh, oh, no, no, we won't. We won't jump straight in. You can do a little introduction. So my name is Mark. Um, I'm originally from Ireland, but I've been living in the US since 2013. I got into coaching, I guess, like a lot of people do to give back. I don't think I even had a choice, really. I think when I was about 15 or 16, the club I grew up playing for, which is Cork Harlequins in Ireland, just needed people to help out with the youth section. I went in and I started helping out. And then when I was 21, I was lucky enough to move or to come to the States for summer and work some summer camps. And somebody said to me, you know, you should look into doing this as a job. And I then kind of fell into some coaching roles back home in Ireland and got really lucky that one thing kind of led to another. And I was able to get an opportunity to move to the U.S. in 2013 where I started working for an English fellow uh, by the name of Ian Byers at Longwood University in a small town called Farmville, Virginia. <clears throat> and that was right when the game Farmville was big on Facebook. So when I told all my friends I was moving there, people were a little surprised. <laughs> and then um, after two years there, I moved to the College of William and Mary, which is the second oldest school in America. And I was there for five years in Williamsburg, Virginia. And then in March of this year, I started my current role, which is as the head coach at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. So since I've been here, we have been on, impacted to a, on a different level, I guess, week on week by, um, by COVID. And it's been a real interesting challenge, but it's been pretty fun. But I guess that's who I am as a coach. But for me, coaching is about developing relationships. So it's more about getting to know the person behind what they do. So I'm a brother, an uncle. Uh, I have five nieces and nephews scattered around the world. Three of them are, are in Australia and two of them are in Ireland. And then um, since moving here, I guess I've gotten into walking and hiking and trying to become more of a classic New Englander. So Will's got a flannel shirt on across from me today. And it's reminding me that I need to start investing in some Vermont flannel because the winter is coming. Yes, very much so. So good baptism of fire, I think. Start a new job, I suppose, a big step as well in your professional career and you put your personal life. But to start a new role in the current circumstance is, I would imagine, a baptism of fire, really. It was quite interesting. So <laughs> my first week in the job, which is back at the start of March, was the last week of the 
girls study period before their exams at the end of their winter term. So within the NCAA setup in America, there are always these rules about when you can and can't do things. So that week, a couple of them came by my office and introduced themselves. We went out for breakfast as a team. And then the next week they had exams for the following two weeks, they were on spring break. So there was about a month where I was employed, but wasn't going to be able to have in-person contact. And over the course of that month, we went from planning when our training sessions were going to be and getting really excited about getting out on the pitch to trying to figure out what we were going to be able to do when everyone was at home. Our athletics director has been in um, working in athletics for 30 something years. And I think I'll remember this forever that on the second Tuesday I was in the job, we had an all staff meeting and he stood up and he said, in the 30 something years I've worked in college athletics, this is the biggest thing I've ever encountered. And I turned to somebody and said, this is my ninth day as a head coach. So like, let's see where this takes us. And we've been trying to be creative. One of the things that I kind of just said to myself was, nobody knew what you were planning to do this spring. So nobody knows if this is going to be different to the plan. So whereas in America, we have a lot of coaches who are really tenured and have been at their school and working at their program for a long, long time, I was new. And I said, right, if I had 20 years of, a head, of being a head coach and everyone knew, oh, once we get into our spring season, this is what we do. This is what it looks like. People would feel like this was really shaking us up. So we just kind of approached everything with the, this is just how we do things this year. You know, it might be different next year, but for now, this is what we're going to do. And we got creative about the use of Zoom, about trying to be mindful of not overloading them with hockey content when we weren't sure when we were going to get back on the pitch together. We got creative with guest speakers. We had a ton of different people who played at quite a high level at different levels of international hockey come and talk with the girls. And we just started to really get to know each other. And like I said, I'm some, I believe the importance of developing healthy relationships. And it became quite a challenge. There was a, a meeting I was on um, with our alumni group. And I said to our players, I'm just a, I could be a hologram. They've never met me in person. They don't know what I look like. And one of the most interesting things was that after about five, five months or so of us only meeting on zoom, we all came back to campus and I was volunteering at a COVID testing center. And a lot of the girls started to come through to get their COVID tests when we were in a quarantine phase. And that was the first time I'd seen a lot of them in person. So then these people who were all the same height on Zoom, they all just were shoulders and heads. They were taking up the same amount of the screen. Suddenly I was able to see who was taller than who, who, who was more outgoing because when people put themselves on mute, it makes those kind of things challenging. So it was a, a definitely a different start, but in a lot of ways, we just made the most of it. And I'm trying to stay quite positive. So rather than focusing on what we didn't, we just focused on what we did, those opportunities to talk more, to learn and be intentional about reaching out to each other properly and making healthy and deeper relationships. The one thing I think that's quite difficult with that is if, let's say you've been doing the same job for 20 years and you see this with teaching all the time, but also coaches, you get into a routine that's based around the mechanics and the structure of what your day looks like. And if you're not careful, you can lose the importance of values and principles within your coaching environment. And I think the key for me in terms of being authentic and true to what you're doing, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the constraints, is to really lean into what do your values and your principles look like in this current state of affairs? 
And that can be much harder if you've been doing the same thing for a continuous period of time, where actually you start to get bogged down in the drills and uh, this is how we play, rather than actually what do you stand for as a person? So I think, you know, for me, you're, you're an advantage there. The slight disadvantage is that you might not really know what those values and principles look like in your current environment because you've not been there. So how have you found that in terms of identifying what you want to look like, what you want the environment to look like, what you want the values of the people you want to look like? How have you been able to identify that within the current constraints? So I guess in a lot of ways, I've been quite reliant on a bit of reading I was doing and one of the things that lockdown did was it gave, gave me a much more of an opportunity to read a bit more than I usually used to. But one of the books that I would recommend to nearly everybody that I meet is The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. And in there, he lays out kind of a framework to have an effective organization and an effective team. And in there, it's basically three steps. The first step is to build safety the second step is to share vulnerabilities. And then the third step is to agree on your, your direction and your course of action. So in a lot of ways, I had my blueprint as to how we were going to operate. We were going to make sure that everybody felt safe and everybody felt that they belonged in the space that we were operating in. And then we were going to work very hard to get to know each other better. Being new, what I didn't want is... Because of the cyclical nature of college athletics, people will talk a lot that because you have so much turnover year on year, you kind of have to wait a couple of years to get your kids in the door and to get your recruits, to get your players. And I just think that that is an absolute cop out. I think if you're a good coach, you should be able to work with the players that are there because that's what coaches do in every other setting in the world, develop them, make them better. And achieve what you can with what you have as you start for those new players to come into your environment. And the aim for me was to get to a stage where those players trusted me, would do the work, would engage with where we were going as a team. And we started to move in that direction because we started to have a lot more informality creep into what we were doing, which was we would have a team meeting or we would do an activity and then we would have a lot of FaceTime calls and we were quite intentional about using FaceTime rather than text because it was a way for us to get to know each other better, to see each other's facial expressions. And a lot of times I would concentrate on the conversation after the conversation. So if you have a team training session or you have an in-person interaction, you can read someone's body language. As they walk away, you can go back and grab them and say, hey, really sorry, Will, I think you misunderstood or I don't think know that I communicated that effectively because what I was trying to say to you was a positive thing. And it, it looks like you're, you're not like, it looks like it's, it's hit you in a negative way. And we don't have that opportunity when we interact solely on zoom, we could, you and I could have a great conversation. I could leave it going, man, Will and I are totally on the same page. And you could leave the conversation and be like, geez, that Mark guy is totally off on a, like his own Island. I don't know what he believes in. So encouraging the players to communicate with each other, after the initial conversation to make sure they were on the same page was huge for me because of the importance that I place on relationships. And I wanted the, I wanted the girls to understand that I wasn't kidding when I think that you win with people. And that's about us developing healthy relationships that are going to help us move the program forward so that we can be more honest with each other, demand more of each other when we train in person 
And we can have more fun when you know somebody on a deeper level. You've got more in-jokes. You've got more things that connect you. But we weren't going to be able to do some of those in-person things, but we could develop healthier relationships that way. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, firstly, I'm slightly worried that you can hear me after our Zoom conversations have finished. Um, that's, that's a real worry. You're like Alex Ferguson. <laughs> no, but I, I, I completely agree. That whole, it is a cop-out to say I need my people before I can coach. Coaching is, in, in my opinion, is about creating connections with people and working out where the commonality lies within a you know, complex group of individuals and harnessing that. And it, it, you shouldn't be able to skip that process just by choosing the people that you have. Not, and not in a sport like hockey. I mean, in professional football, you can. You can bin people off and bring the people in that you want almost immediately within a large amount of, of professional football environments. But in, in sports like ours, which is for the vast majority amateur or academic-based, then you, you have to work with the people that you have. And real true coaching is unpicking that person and, and working out where you see things in the same way or how maybe you can persuade people to see things in the same way or how they can persuade you that what their view is is the way forward and I think that 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 latter point is a can be a real challenge on values and principles of an individual coach understanding when actually the values of the group supersede yours as long as you know they're not destructive behaviors that can be a, a, a real challenge and I think particularly in a coaching environment like um, university environments which you know we've both coached in for period of time where there is a constant churn of your player base at what point do you, your values set the tone are your principles set the tone for the environment and at what point does the collection of the players values and the environmental values set the tone for the environment or is there somewhere in the middle and it's very difficult when you keep getting a different group of people i think the the, the easiest step is to imprint yourself on the environment but for me i, I think I, I every that. environment is going to be shaped by the people that are in it though so whether that's coaches players you know ancillary support stuff everyone's going to have an impact on what we value and i think i think that phrase you know the way we do things around here includes the word we and i think that it is in it's um it's impacted on an annual basis by player turnover by the group of people. But one of the activities we did a few weeks ago was we found this um, social experiment that um, I've seen before. It's, there's a video on YouTube of it where this woman walks into a waiting room and she's a setup and um, they beep, they make this beep, everyone stands up, she joins in, she stands up um, and she conforms to the social norm of her environment. But then all the people who knew that this was an experiment are taken out of the room slowly, and she's left standing up and down to this beep on her own. And then a whole new group of people come into the room, and they still stand up and down in line or in tune with the beep because she now orients people around that behavior, behavioral standard within that environment. So we looked at that and we said, what are the things that if I was, if a new player was to come in here that they have to conform to? And do we think that those behaviors are helping us towards our goal? And if we don't, do we need to keep those behaviors? 
because sometimes a team like this or an environment like this will be doing things because they're the way things are done around here, but they may not actually be helping us get to where we want to go. And can we be, can we create goal alignment so that we can create behavioral alignment? Because ultimately, I think a team is defined by the phrase, we're the kind of people who dot, dot, dot. And then we include all of the behaviors that connect us. So on a hockey team, we're the kind of people who work really hard at practice. We're the kind of people who try to pass more than we dribble. We're the kind of people who aren't afraid of a one-on-one elimination, whatever those things are in your setup. Maybe within a club setup, we're the kind of people who stay and watch the other team play after our game. And when you have enough connecting phrases like that, you can have diverging phrases. So while we're the kind of people who do A, B, and C, these three people on the team have totally different job interests, television show interests, music interests, but they still feel connected because they're a part of the team and they're able to identify with those unifying phrases. So to me, I think that you're, I can have an impact, but the impact I'd like to have is just to help them identify and align their connectors and be okay with letting go of some of the ones that don't help us move forwards and then almost weed the garden, you know, take away a behavior that doesn't help us shape, you know, restructure something to make it move us in the right direction rather than stand at the front yelling, like, this is how we're doing things now. This it's my way or the highway, because I don't know that that is who I am as a person. And I don't think it's authentic to me. And I just don't think, it would be sustainable in the long term for me to try to be something that I'm not. Yeah, I think that experiment is, is a great one, isn't it? And I think um, in terms of using it as, a, as an analogy for group behavioral responses, it's very, very powerful. I mean, the one thing that I would then further explore with players is what are the beeps in our environment? So what are those cues that are going to give us a really exaggerated behavioural response. So which, what things that are going to happen are really going to stretch and challenge our, our behaviours and our behavioural response to in, in terms of the behaviours that we want to see. So what are the heated moments where our negative behaviours or our, um, habitual negative behaviours might start to be exhibited? And, and how are we going to make sure that the behavioural response is what we want to exhibit? Um, and it, you can keep working stuff like that for a year, can't you? <laughs> With adding these little drops. Of- Far more than a year. I think, again, going back to that cyclical nature, I don't think that work's ever done. Because when you have a high amount of player turnover, which every team does, those norms and standards and behavioral identities change year and year. And then we used to do an exercise, um, we would call those our roadblocks. And in much the same way that when you get in your car and you use ways to help you plan your route for where you're gonna go on your trip, you can pre-plan your route for where you're gonna go when those things happen. So we said like, what are the big stressors that are likely to come up over the course of a season? They might be issues of playing time. They might be um, a heavy period of academic stress. It might be somebody breaks up with their significant other. They might end up getting swamped into a show on Netflix and lose track of time management skills because 
they're so engrossed in whatever they're watching. And then the team sat, this was at a previous school, we would sit and we'd look at each one and we'd say, well, what's our solution for that? So that when we encounter that problem, if, you're if you see a friend going through it, you can say, hey, remember we said that we'd do this. Or if you encounter it, you can say, oh, I have, I have that written down actually. So this isn't going to stress or worry me because I already have my plan. And I think that that is, it sounds like a really silly, childish thing to do, but in a lot of ways, I think that resilience is having the tools to meet the problems that you face. So the more pre the more prepared you are, the more tools you have ready to roll that are in your toolkit, you know you have them ready, the less stressed and less um, overwhelming an environment will feel because you already have those solutions pre-prepared. Whereas when you encounter them and you think you're the only one dealing with them and you're the first one to ever have to balance school and, and athletics or you're the first person to deal with not getting the playing time that you wanted or whatever, it feels like an overwhelming thing. But when we've identified them, agreed on the solution, and they have that written down in a notebook that they carry with them, it feels a total, totally different. I think for me, <clears throat> nuance of language is important there. I would say there's the difference between resilience and robustness. So re robustness is we've probably been through this before and we're resistant to it. Resilience is what are, what are our sort of values and principles that we're going to use or lean upon when new stuff occurs and maybe we take it badly. So maybe we've, we've been knocked back, we've not been robust enough to deal with that situation. How do we recover? What do we come back for? And this idea of um, accepting error in our environment and using those values to, to be resilient, to come back from that error. Um, and hopefully through that process of developing resilience, we then become robust to, to, to certain things and we're able to impact them positively, approach them positively the next time it happens. That's just my, my feeling that difference between robustness and resilience is, is, is really key in, in going on that journey to discovering how to be more robust through being resilient. I think, too, you have to look at the kind of environment that you're in, the kind of supports that you have. There's a lot of things that go into developing those, those characteristics. But um, there's some really cool research by Mustafa Sarkar about the importance of having a challenging environment with a lot of support available. Because if you have a lot of challenge but low support, that's an overwhelming environment. You're not going to develop resilience in that environment because you're going to feel overloaded all the time. If it's low challenge, low support, it's going to be far too comfortable, um, or it's, it's going to nothing's really going to happen down there. And then if it's high support, low challenge, it's going to be too comfortable for the players because they're never going to feel like they're at risk. Things can go wrong. But if the challenge is high and the level of support you provide as a coach, or that the environment itself provides is high, and that doesn't necessarily need to be in the moment, then that's how we develop players who are resilient whether that is in their day-to-day -day life or in their, um, you know, when they're on the pitch. And I think that sticks in my brain as being one of those things that people don't think is necessarily developable. But if you're intentional in your actions as a coach, then you can help these players to grow in those areas. I think in, in terms a bit of a giggle. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think as as well understanding the 
the pressures and stresses that are going on outside of the hockey, um, not just look at what sport in general, not just looking uh, in isolation at what you're doing, trying to understand the whole person, you know, you lent on it earlier, have they broken up with their significant other? And then understanding how you can tailor that, tailor the environment to take advantage of. Maybe you have periods of high stress and low support to really test their their resilience and their ability to to, to come together to cope with a highly stressful atmosphere. And they're like the GB hockey team used to do that and have dark periods to prepare them for, um, you know, the intense scrutiny, both um, in terms of media and um, playing level and the fact they're away from home of Olympic Games. Uh, if they can't go through those dark periods successfully, and they can't lean on each other in those moments. They can't trust each other in those moments to deal with that together. Then they've got no chance when it comes to an Olympics. But you can't have that environment for 12 months because you will kill people. Like you'll completely burn them out. So looking over periodization is, is key, I think. And I think what you're doing there is you're giving the team the opportunity to be the support structure. And at times, we view our role as being that support, but maybe our job is just to be the challenge and see can the support be provided by someone else. And by stepping out of that role, is someone else stepping in? Is someone else filling that gap? Which then means that the team is noticing what each other need, best supporting them, best at providing that. And maybe some days we're going to be crazy supportive and the team have to be really challenging to each other. And as long as the environment, which could be, the micro environment of the team or the macro environment of their day-to-day life is providing them with appropriate challenge and support. We can grow those things, but we could delve into this for weeks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one thing in terms of that d- development of the team that I would look at as well, which might lend itself to specifically there, how they can each support each other would be um, the Jahari window model of just, you know, understanding where we are now, where we wanted to get to, what we're not aware of, what you're not aware of, how we explore that together. I think that can be a really powerful tool to to all sorts of attributes of being a really positive team and connected team and and strong team. Um, I realise we've gone very much off track, so that's a good preamble to the questions, Mark. Number one, do you feel indoor is an important development tool for players? Either way, why? I think it depends where you live. I think if you're in an environment where you can't be outside, it's a great alternative. But I think ultimately, if you're trying to develop people to play a game, they should be playing something that looks and feels as close to the game that they're going to be developed to play. So if you want them to be really good indoor players, Indoor is great for that. If you want them to be good outdoor players, I think we are constrained by the size of the pitch, the rules of the game, the ability to use the boards, the inability to use 3D skills. There's a lot of things that are different about indoor that if it's a situation like in America where you don't have tremendous access to um, pitches where the ball can move quickly and the weather gets really bad in the wintertime and you can't be outside playing, it's a great alternative, but it, I don't think that it is the be-all and end-all of player development by any stretch of the imagination. 
So how, how do you think that impacts then your view of what other sports do to improve the ability to play a sport? So this idea of donor sports, you know, does, a, does someone who's good at football, soccer, does it have an impact on your hockey? I think it does, but I don't think that you should play those things to be better at hockey. I think you should play those things to become a more well-rounded person or player, you know? I don't think I don't think anyone consciously goes and plays basketball and says, hey, this is really going to help my hockey. They go and play basketball because it's enjoyable and then they are um, their unconscious brain is going to tie those lessons together. But I don't think anyone is going, man, I'm taking three-point shots here. This is really like when I hit the ball on a penalty corner. I'm at the edge of a circle. I have a target. I'm trying to accelerate the ball towards. I have to read the defense. Like, no, you just you play the game and then your unconscious brain is probably going to remember some of the perceptual cues that you recognize, how you interpret your, your landscape and the opportunities for action that the game gives you, and you react to those. And in that way, yeah, hockey gives you those kind of options. The movements are similar. I mean, if you're pinned on the boards and you were able to find a way to attack your own right foot and create a gap between two defenders, I think that's a great lesson to learn. But I also think that that's a lesson that if you're going to be playing a version of hockey with a stick in your hand and a ball and you're playing one team against another and you have the option to play that outside in a water-based pitch or to play it inside in a stuffy hall in a country that predominant, like from my experience of indoor hockey before I came to America, was that it was very much an add-on other than a thing that was taken very seriously. So I would say... If you're going to be playing other sports, play other sports because you enjoy them, because they're fun, because it's another way for you to socialize, to get exercise, to do all these things. <clears throat> and then in the end, if you feel like you need to make a choice as to what sport you want to play, choose the sport you enjoy the most. But uh, are there lessons that you know people take from one sport to another? Absolutely. But I don't think that intentionally choosing a sport like I don't you should be as a parent saying, right, well, when my child is ages six through eight, she's going to do gymnastics because that's going to give a great set of fundamental movement skills. And then eight through 10, it's going to be tennis because it's going to really heighten her footwork and her hand-eye coordination. And then once she's got those things grounded, we're going to increase her hockey by X percent to develop this ultra athlete. But I don't think anyone does that. You know, I think... Ultimately, whether it's a donor sport or just playing in the playground, you're going to take things from your experiences in life and bring those to your experience in sport. Yeah, I think probably a long. Yeah, I think that's fine. I mean, for me, I suppose as well, you look at it maybe in different ways. With maybe hockey not being the end goal, but the ability for someone to function uh, more effectively physically so yes have enjoyment but also I think for them to be creative uh, athletes and able to you know you spoke about cue recognition able to understand that how cues in different environments might be able to you might be able to interact with them slightly differently in different ways rather than just the way you've done in hockey so let's say you know how you might interact in a 1v1 or a, a more congested space in rugby and actually do those movement patterns, then transfer and help you with hockey, possibly. 
Um, but I'm just picturing your team wrapping their arms around each other's face to pull each other to the ground. You see me defend, obviously. Um, uh, yeah, I think um, I don't necessarily think it needs to be intentional, but I think it can be. And I think those um, the the really key thing for me is trying to create relatedness between those activities and allow the athletes to connect the dots a little bit better across multiple sports. I think for me, that that's how you create the sport of the future, how you empower players to create the sport of the future by allowing them to see those similarities and, and use unique responses uh, in, in environments. Um, but, okay. We'll, we'll get on the fence there. <laughs> I think also that that could be, in a lot of ways, the role of like a strong physical education curriculum. I think um, I spoke with a teacher friend of mine over here and said, oh, we're looking just at 1v1s for the first half of the year, but we're going to look at 1v1s through a hockey lens, through a chasing, like a tag, you know, try and catch each other lens. We're going to look at them through a, other ball sport lenses but they were trying to take the the things you mentioned, that ability to eliminate somebody in a 1v1 and look at what are the consistent features across a ton of sports rather than what I think a lot of people experience in physical education, which is, right, this week it's hockey, next week it's soccer, the following week it's basketball, and we're just going to go play, but we're not going to look at the almost ingredients that make up those sports. And because we don't understand the ingredients... We don't see in much the same way that, you know, you, you have a recipe book and there could be eight ingredients per recipe and three of them could be consistent recipe to recipe to recipe because they're not talking about that you need to do this. Or that, you know, if you used this here and you used that here, that you're going to be able to, to take those lessons and that relatedness you spoke to. And so I think it, sadly, I think it comes down to the intentionality and the depth of understanding of the professional that is being employed to teach these sports rather than the playing of the sport. Because I think what you need is somebody to help the players draw their attentional focus to certain aspects. Now you will have some players who will naturally recognize that stuff, but a lot of people, I think when it comes to sport at a young age, unless they're encouraged to do it, become passive consumers because they go, this is fun. I'm going to go score goals. I'm going to be great. I know that I didn't really understand how to curl a ball in soccer um, until I was a teenager. And I'm sure I had been doing it before that. I still don't know how to bowl a ball straight in cricket because my hand naturally twists as I bowl. So I'm inadvertently a spin bowler. I don't know why. It's just as I do this, my hand turns I don't know that I could actually <laughs> throw a ball straight. I realize now that this is a um I think the technical podcast. I think the technical phrase would be a pie chucker. <laughs> I'm just realizing that a key piece of what I just expressed was an arm movements that will not come across on a podcast. Yeah, I think I think yeah, I think it's that for me it's a physical education piece. It's it's and it's about you philosophy on on how you educate the people so teach teach people don't teach the sport um and i think that transfers to coaching as well um right we'll move on we'll go more hockey specific zonal man-to-man -man and why 
Uh, we've had this chat a couple of times off air. I think um, this is a needlessly um, one or the other question because I don't think binary. anyone is... Bi binary is the word you want. Pardon me? Binary is binary. Yeah. It's only just hitting nine o'clock in the morning over here. Well, well, you know, I'm not I'm not quite awake yet. But I think different situations calls for different solutions, first of all. Um, and I think that the proximity of the the ball to your defensive circle is gonna change the extent to which you're comfortable playing either. Um I've worked with people in the past who really believe in Matt and I've worked with people in the past who really believe in zone. And I think also a piece of it is your ability as a coach or as a player to buy into the system that you guys are playing at the time. Because, you know, you could look at a team and go, man, they play man to man. We're going to be able to tear them apart. But they might take such pride in their ability to play man to man that you're never going to, like, no matter how many balls you play to space, no matter how much off-ball movement you do, you're just not getting through. And you might say the same with a team that, uh, they play with a zone and they keep leaving these very big vertical channels. Their sweeper isn't stepping in to cover those as quickly as we would think they need to. But man, are they able to collapse that box around you as soon as you receive. And it's nowhere near as easy as you thought it was when you come into the game. So I think setting yourself up with just one solution to a problem is, is a trick. It's a challenge. But I think you also, when you buy into a, a team, a team construct, you're going to have success. So in the past, we've with teams I've worked with, we've played zones and man and different like patterns. And when we were all bought in to the same idea, it worked. And as soon as doubt creeps in to one, it's infectious. And then we need to come up with a new plan because we don't back the old one anymore. I I I, I think that's a, a really good sentiment and statement, actually, the buy-in with any, you know, it's team defense. If one person yeah. does something different, you you screw yourself over as a team. So, <laughs> uh, so I, I'd follow up with that and say, what what's the outcome? You know, what's the strength of this system? What are we trying to achieve? What's the vulnerability of it? What do we need to be aware of that might be exploited by the other team? And I think be really open and honest around that. And, and also, uh, what are we good at? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, you, know, you watch Germans play man to man. They're incredible at it. Um, you know, they'll, they'll, I can't remember who it was, it might have been Craig Parnham. You know, they mark you that tightly that they'll follow you to the toilet at half time. It's, you know, it's, it's almost culturally ingrained in them that man to man is, is how you defend. But also, their 1v1 defending allows them to cope with the situation when man to man goes wrong. So, you know, they can be yeah. pulled apart, but when they're pulled apart, that one person who's left there defending is still very, very good in a 1v1. Um, yeah. So it, it plays into their, their inherent strengths as players, and culturally it's ingrained in them. And I think, the, the, as you said, the buying is key, as is the understanding of the system and the understanding of the vulnerabilities of the system. Move on, shall we? we yes, okay. How often Mic Mic drop. Um, right, so from your experiences, how is the game changing and where is it going next? I think, I've been reading this book recently um, called Inverting the Pyramid, which is about the history of soccer tactics. And then last night I was watching um, 
finally got around to watch Take the Ball, Pass the Ball, the documentary on um, Pep's Barcelona. And it was really interesting. I didn't know that Arigachi, when he left AC Milan, that Fabio Capello came in and took over. But Capello was a, an interviewee on the, 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 the movie and he was saying, oh, Sachi's Milan was one of the best and then straight away said, and I took over that project. So obviously it takes a lot of pride in continuing that tradition. And I think that what we are viewing is massive tactical or, you know, reinventions in sport in general. I think you see it in, I've had this conversation a lot recently about soccer, but I will come back to hockey, I promise. And things like pressing and, you know, different tactical constructs. None of these things are new. You know, I think in, in hockey, we have drawn a lot from the movements of soccer, and now it's going in reverse at times. Obviously, formations have been similar. So I think from a tactical point of view, we have seen, I think the biggest thing I'm noticing is the redeployment of your free player. People used to sweep pretty deep in their own halves, and I think they're trying to get that free player higher up the pitch when they press to try and win the ball higher up the pitch. But that would be more, I think, in the women's game than in the men's game because of the obvious physiological differences in ability to, to distribute over distance. But ultimately, I think the game got really, really fast. And that was what was determining success was physiological capacity. And then the, the rest of the world caught up with the teams that had taken those leaps. The Dutch women right now are phenomenal individually, but also they have a lot of capacity to, to problem solve ta tactically. Um, and I think what we're seeing is that they're kind of separating themselves from the rest of the pack. What I would love to see is the whole pack get stronger and they become a lot more um, contentious and competitive, not just within the pro league, but outside the pro league as well, that we get a, a broader base of talent because I think if that happens, we're going to see more creativity come through. But right now we're seeing the Dutch reinvent themselves and everybody follow them in much the same way that you saw that with the All Blacks in rugby, that the All Blacks would do something, everyone would do it, but the All Blacks would already have reinvented themselves and moved on. So no one's able to catch up. So we mentioned before this started Andrew Wilson's appointment to Canada. I think um, the Canadian women, the Irish women, these teams that are just outside the pro league are getting stronger, but the pro league might separate them because they're not going to have the opportunity to play those stronger teams. And you saw it a little bit with them, the weaker teams in the pro league struggling in their Olympic qualifiers because they're not used to winning anymore. So this really is quite a rambling response. I apologize. But ultimately, I think what's happening is we are getting a group of teams quite high who have and a group of teams below who are experiencing those teams who have quite a lot, but not being able to come up with solutions to them. And what I would love to see the next step be that they catch up a little bit and then that the games become even more competitive. I watched the Germany-Belgium games that were played in um, Dusseldorf. I just threw them on over the weekend, so I was a bit behind the pace. But something that really stuck out to me was um, the efficiency of penalty corners. I think it's really improving. Um, and I think we're seeing things get a little bit more exciting. That was a very rambling response. I don't know if there's any coherent thought that came through there. Apologies. No, well, I'll give you another rambling response. I think um, because the, the, the 
lack of depth and quality in the women's game outside of the Dutch women. I think the Argentinian women are really good, actually, because they've got more variability in their player type. So they've got players that can do different things. I think they'd be really exciting to coach because you could come mm. with a really unique way of playing with them. But they're still, you know, they're not at the same level as the Dutch women. I think the Pro League works for the men because you've got certainly six teams that could all win all the time. Um, you know, some more regularly than others. And Belgium at the moment look really good still. Australia look really good yeah. still. But, be, you know, you, you point around... Um, more creativity there is much more variability in terms of how the men's teams play to a good standard because there's, there's a critical mass of, of nations that are all quite good and I think you know maybe the Pro League doesn't work for women because of that it's not a sexist comment really at all it's just the relative standard of the game uh, and the relative strength of the teams there's a big difference between um who's competitive in the men and who's competitive in the women's side. In in terms of uh, pressing and stuff like that and, and comparing it to football, I think you're right. It's, it's cyclical in nature and it's like different styles get a renaissance because let's say man-to-man -man is in vogue because let's say at that time the best team in the world was playing man-to-man. -man. So suddenly everyone goes, oh, we've got to be good at man-to-man because -man. Uh, that's how you win. Well, eventually there's a solution to that. And it goes back and you see, you know, Belgium are the best in the world at zone. And now everyone feels like they have to play that. I think you've got to be really clear around your culture, what's authentic to you. you know. I don't think that this, like you asked me where the game is now and where it's going. And I think in a lot of ways, what I've said is we're basically doing what we've always done. We're looking at who's doing stuff well, copying that. Yeah. And then it's changing because of that. And, I think that's a great thing about sport that it is always moving and changing, but I think hockey, obviously, and people, I know a lot of the guests on your podcast have kind of alluded to this. We change our rules a lot. We are quite forward thinking in terms of how to make the game more exciting. But in a lot of ways, I think it would be great if we stopped with that for a minute and let the players and coaches find, find more ways to solve the game that we have right now for a little while, because with the move to quarters, And then the, um, obviously it's not even a new rule anymore, but you know, the, the self-pass rule, the change in what long corners look like, the, um, the adaptations in quality of penalty corner attack and penalty corner defense. I think there's a lot of things that wouldn't look like change to a lot of people that are causing people to be creative, like that altering of where the long corner happens from, it now being on the 25, I think is a, initially it bothered me. And now I think about it and I'm like, that's a really cool idea, a cool solution because, you know, you can do something totally different from there. If you can just shift the ball quickly, you can attack the circle. Whereas you were down in the baseline in the corner, really hard to get to the circle from there. So I think we hit pause on rule changes and then turn up the volume on celebrating creativity and excitement And we, we'll see where it goes because it could go somewhere really special. I would keep going with some rule changes. I think one big one, actually, that has made a massive uh, impact in the development of the game has been going to penalty shuffles because goalkeeping has suddenly mm. dramatically um, going away from strokes. So I think that's, that's, that's one that maybe people don't speak of a lot. 
I'd be quite radical, I think, to, to create more creativity. I think adding or removing constraints within the game can be really powerful for that. Um, I mean, my own personal views is should get rid of penalty corners, but that's that, that's just based on safety, and I don't think they really replicate the game. Um, but the other one I think would be quite interesting. Shuffles are was so in Ireland they have a tournament every year called the the Interpros where they take the different regions and compete against each other, and then with the concerns over I guess it might have been sharing masks or something like that with COVID, one of the suggestions that they had come up with was that rather than penalty corners that they might have shuffle if you win a penalty corner, and I think that that would be game changing. The score lines would be so dramatic in comparison. The success ratio, the import of a keeper would change hugely. Um, and then, as you said, like it's going to force people to um, to get to get good at them. Because right now, I think in a lot of places, people go, oh, well, we're only going to need that in the final at the end of the year. So we're not going to work on those. But if there's something that you can earn every couple of minutes in a game, 1v1s are going to become a big thing. Well, exactly. And, and the skills involved in them transfer to every other moment of the game. Really, for you know, yeah. goalies are going to get better at smothering and staying balanced. Uh, attackers will be much better at eliminating and finding space and being decisive when to shoot instead of having a moment to shoot. They, they have to find a moment to shoot. Um, you'd see, you might even see a consequence of it, might even see more half court pressing so that you create more 1v1 breakaways, which used to happen a lot when there was offside mm. in hockey. Um, so again, it's that cyclical nature of scenarios that you might see come. The other one I think would be um, quite interesting uh, would be if at a centre you didn't have to be in your own half, you could stand anywhere on the pitch for a centre pass. I think that would be really interesting to see how teams would try and manipulate that from every restart. I think it would it would cut down the waste. When a goal is scored, you could go to the centre and play really quickly, but also just at the start of the game, what would you do? Where would you stand? I think that'd be. I'm not speaking to anyone really about that, but that that's one that I think would be cool. Imagine that and bringing back the bully. <laughs> I love it. You throw the bully, but you can randomly distribute your players anywhere you want on the pitch. Perfect. Okay, so reflecting, which mistakes that you have made in your career have been the most valuable, and why? So I think over here. Um, and when I say over here, so obviously I grew up coaching and playing in, in Ireland. And when you get into coaching in Ireland, if you're doing it relatively well, you end up in charge of a team pretty quickly. Um, so I was 20, 23, I think, when I moved to the US or 23, 23 or 24. So I had been a head coach for a couple of years in different environments. I had my teams done things my way. And then I came to America and I was an assistant and um, I think the biggest mistakes that I made in those first few years were not respecting the boundaries and the not understanding the nature of that role. So um, within my first couple of years, over the first few places that I worked, there were definitely times where I looked at what we were doing and said, like, I want to do this differently. I want to do it my way rather than my boss's way. And... I think I think a part of being a good coach is learning to listen and learning to um, 
to, to understand other people's point of view. And I guess I had come with a dogmatism that like what I do works, what I believe in is the only way as a lot of young coaches do, because you haven't enough of a depth of an experience to understand that, you know, it might not work this time or it might've worked then it might not work now. Um, so there were definitely moments where I would push for and push quite hard to do things a particular way. And, you know, that causes contention within a staff, which your players will pick up on and all those kinds of things. And I think it's an experience that you have to go through to understand the nature of your role as an assistant, but it was definitely beneficial. And I was lucky that I've worked with some wonderful people who rather than bringing down a hammer and being incredibly intense or, you know, critical of me in those moments, they've kind of listened and we've talked things through and they've explained their points of views and also explained, you know, reminded me of what my role was and said, Hey, this isn't your job. You know, this is a decision I'm making. You just have to support me in this. And I think that that's, um, that's been important for me to learn, especially moving into this role that there are times where not everything is a conversation. Sometimes you just have to set the path. And then if people disagree with it, just you have to back it and you have to stick with it because otherwise if you let too much doubt creep in it, it causes problems. And then I guess how that kind of came across was, I was really lucky in that I was empowered a lot. So if we did decide to do something that was my plan, so to speak, then because I was the person who would have understood it best, I was the person who delivered that outwards to the team. Um, and while that would never have been something that happened without the um, approval or support of my head coach, sometimes those things would look like they were coming from me. And I've, I've always worked at places where the team wants to be better than they were when I got there. So we've had to go through a cultural change, a performance mindset change to push the programs to go where they want to go. And um, being the person delivering the, the change meant that sometimes I became the bad guy. And that was quite a powerful lesson for me was to learn like that, how you deliver information, how you, um, in my role now, how I support my assistant as they are empowered to do things is going to be incredibly critical because I had a moment years ago where um, got a lot of quite negative responses to like at the end of, at the end of the year to things we've been doing. And because some of those things have been delivered by me, they, um, they were viewed as like negative things towards me. And I was really, really lucky that some of the players on the team understood that they knew me on a deeper level. They understood who I was and they knew that what was going on wouldn't have happened without the head coach's approval. And they kind of spoke up for me and we were able to navigate that and kind of come through it on the other side. But it was, it had the potential to be pretty severe and pretty, pretty um, impactful to my professional career, but it was quite important in my own growth as a coach because it it really illustrated to me the the importance of making it clear to people that I, I will listen, I will take on board their opinions and their thoughts. And that became a lot more um, explicit in my interactions with players after that. I was quite firm with them that like, hey, you know, we can talk about this if you need to. We can 
have this conversation. You know, don't ever be afraid to come and talk to me about these things because I need to know that we're on the same page. And I was, I became more um, conscious of the kind of question asked, you know, asking questions like, what do you, what do you need from me to help you to achieve this? Really reframing my position as assistant rather than assistant to the head coach that I was there to help everybody. And once that happened, there was a massive shift in how I was viewed where six months previous, I had been the enemy because I was the one who had brought these changes that were a little bit negative in their eyes to, oh, Mark's on our side and will work with us. And the actual delivery of content didn't change. What we were doing didn't change. But the way it was viewed changed dramatically because I was open to feedback and open to, to conversation. I think there's an element of when you start out, obviously, you know, you're um, a one-man show generally in coaching. Um, mm-hmm. as you said, and there's a, there's a perception, I would say certainly in England, it's probably the same in America and Ireland as well, um, that coach or teacher is imparting their knowledge. Uh, so there's a, there's a natural arrogance that you have to assume that comes with that. So I'm in charge. I have all the information that will, I will embellish you with and you will therefore improve. Uh, and I think particularly when you're a younger coach, the way that you cope with that is to be arrogant, is to be black and white, and then going into a, an environment that um, maybe is slightly more professional when you're an assistant, um, and as you naturally as you get older, I think you start to understand that the world is not black and white. It is particularly with something that is in a, in essence a social science, that it's, you know, it's grey and it's understanding people and understanding their take on it, their perception on stuff. And as you go down that line, as you as you go along that that path, I suppose, as a as a coach, you start to understand the importance of talking to people and not being um, the person who's you know imparting their wisdom that you are so gracious to receive. Uh, on on the group uh, and I think that fits in with a working with a head coach in, in an assistant role as well you you know you're part of a network of people all collaborating um, but there are the moments where as you say you know you're running a program um, you know, I've, been, I've been learning French so there, there are those je suis le chef moments I'm in charge <laughs> the books does stop here because ultimately I'm responsible. So there's going to be a moment where actually this is what we're doing, but the delivery of it can be very inclusive and very um, explorative, but the book stops with the head coach. Um, And I think there's not much really that prepares you to be an assistant other than being an assistant. No. And I think it's the same with a lot of jobs. I, like as you were talking there, I, it, something jumped back into my mind, but it has run out. Oh, so, like in my first few years, my ego would unconsciously come to the surface, where I would say, "Do they not know I have family overseas? Do you know I'm here to help them? Can't they see that I'm doing this for them?" Yada yada yada. And then 
as I reflect on those conversations, I'm like, who was that fool? Like, why would you ever think that they are going to consider those things when they really don't matter? Because the players are what matters. They, you know, being from overseas and you're going to go through this at times will work. You, you'll feel like you've made big sacrifices to be there. And then if things don't go exactly how you want, at times I would be like, do people not know how much I've sacrificed to be here to help them? Which is totally not the case. It's, do, do I not realize how much of a risk they took on bringing in this absolute, you know, no one knew me, no one knew much about me. Um, I think that's part of my evolution that's come on in coaching is through being in a more professional environment over here. I've realized that it couldn't be less about me. It's more about the people that I work with them become a lot more other centric in, in my role as a coach. But I do think that it takes time and it, it's an adjustment and it's, it's an understanding. As you said, coaching is it's rooted in relationships. It's rooted in a culture and a community. And you, you have to feel a part of that community to enjoy it. But in some ways, you'll never be a part of the community because you're there to help you're almost like a, a city planner, you know, you're, you're there to help make sure that it all works effectively and efficiently, but you're probably never going to be the one sitting in the park on a Saturday, enjoying the park because that's where the, the team will be. They'll be out there enjoying that. And your joy will come from seeing their enjoyment. You're picking up. We the, had a, when the park is made, you're the person picking up the litter. True. <laughs> no, I think, I think there's, there's a lot about, um, a servant leadership model within within coaching, mm. and if if you go into it with that sort of "woe is me" attitude, you know, look at what I am giving for you. Uh, you should be bloody grateful. You, know, you don't get very far. Yeah, you, you have to go in. You know, I talk to a lot of young coaches at the moment. You have to go in with your eyes open, um, and you have to give your time willingly because ultimately, a lot of your time is not going to be suitably reimbursed. Um, but you have to know that at the time and you go in you, you, there is a sacrifice you make but you're doing it because you want to you're doing it because you believe in what you're doing uh, and it excites you uh, I think create clear boundaries as to what, what that commitment looks like but give that time willingly um, know that you're going into going into a session in a grumpy mood because you haven't had enough sleep but give that time willingly and say, okay, I'm in this mood, but I'm here because I want to be. I'm here because I've made the commitment to be. And um, therefore, I'm going to give it my best crack. And I think if you do it for this feeling of appreciation that you think you're going to get from others, it's never going to work because you're never going to feel appreciated enough, whether that is, as you mentioned, financially, the amount of people who say thank you after whatever moment, you have to be able to find your joy from it uh, intrinsically. And it has to be, you know, by my being here, they have a great experience and I get to be a part of that experience within my role. I don't, I'm not going to be the one out there running around smiling, laughing, joking, but I'm going to be the one here observing that and saying, man, I had a big role in, in their enjoyment today. And that's fantastic. And then it's almost the, that idea of planting seeds that you'll never see grow. Like, you know that these are going to become 
great people down the line. They're going to really enjoy their hockey experience for a long period of time and that you had a part to play in that. And I think that that is um, a big part of being other centric, but I think it's, it's hard to, to remember that when, like you said, you haven't had a lot of sleep, you're a bit grumpy, yada, yada, yada. So I think it's important to find routines and things that you can do to, to leave your emotional baggage in the car before the session starts so that you're not bringing that with you. And, you know, as the players come into the session, handing them a little bit of your emotional baggage to carry around with them for the whole session. That's not their job. That's not what they're here for. They have made a decision to come and be in your environment because they think it's going to be fantastic, not because they're there to help carry your luggage. I think, I think though, sort of slight, slight contradiction to that is, I think being authentic and being open with the players and saying, look, this is what's going. You don't have to unload everything, obviously, but just say, this is where I am today is an important part of them developing emotional intelligence as well. So, you know, we're all in this together. Our roles look different and our parts of the roles look different. But if you um, sterilise your personality for them and take away everything that you're going through from that environment, then actually you can stifle their personal growth as well. So I think it, it can be important to be open uh, and to be vulnerable and model that vulnerability that you would expect the players to see as well, but also not let that drive the agenda of the day. It's I think that's probably a better way of putting it, not, not let your baggage drive the, drive the day, because I do think there is tremendous worth in being vulnerable, being open, being honest. But um, in our environment, um, we're in an office for a chunk of the time and then we're out on the pitch. And there's not a huge break point between the office and the pitch. So as with every office, you know, you're going to get a, a great email some days and you're gonna, some days you're going to get an email that's about a minute detail that's really going to like get you riled up. And I don't think that needs to come to training. But... Um, if you've seen the all or nothing on Tottenham Hotspur, the bit where Mourinho comes in and he goes, guys, as you can see, I'm not myself today. And he talks about how he had a little dog who passed away. And he's like, it's the biggest thing I've ever dealt with. I, it shouldn't bother me as much as it does, but man, like this is really getting me down. So if I'm in a mood today, it's not you. It's my little dog. I can't believe he's gone. And I think that that is, was really powerful, really honest, really vulnerable and something that when I saw it, I was like, I would not have expected that to be included in a documentary. But I think that's a great example of being an authentic coach. But if he was to walk in at the start of the training session or the start of the team meeting and say, right, guys, I got an email from the chairperson today. You know, my contract renegotiation is, is held up or oh, I just got a really annoying text from my daughter. Like, I think there are some things that are that bother us on a daily basis. But there are little problems that you just have to learn to deal with as an adult. And the environment I work in is that we have young adults learning a lot, of, a lot about life that don't necessarily need all my baggage. But absolutely, if there are big things going on in your life that you think you're going to have lasting changes on your emotional state for a period of time, I think it's important to be able to be honest about those. But that bad email you got or that text message you got, you know, just as you were walking out to the pitch... I think you do need as a coach to be able to say, right, I'll deal with that afterwards. That doesn't need to drastically affect how I interact with this space right now. 
Yeah, and I think we would ex- you talk about players parking an emotional response to certain situations. So, you know, um, when they goal is, for example, so Maddie Hinch talks about uh, she goes behind the goal, parks the thought to collect it later and deal with it after the game so that it doesn't then influence the next part of her performance. Uh, it's always dangerous to check your emails with, you know, immediately before going on the pitch. That's a big risk. But um, I think being able to just say, OK, I'm going to put a pin in that, not let it influence what's about to happen, but deal with it later. I think if you can learn to do that, I mean, it's very, very difficult. If someone knows how to do it quite well, I would love a phone call to help me deal with that. But um, Right, OK, so I suppose moving on. Uh, what's the best motivational environment you've created and why was it special? I don't think I've ever actually, mm, I was going to say, I don't think I've ever solely created one, but I was obviously quite important in one that we created a number of years ago. So four or five years ago, I was um, working with our regional team um, when I lived in Virginia so in America, we have this program called Futures, where players will train in regional performance centers, get selected to represent their region, to go to what's called the National Futures Championship, where there basically is the selection, the first round of selection for their um, junior national teams. And the region that I was working in at the time was the South region. So that was the state of Virginia, North Carolina. And then any hockey players that kind of went further south because there's not a lot of field hockey, as they call it over here in South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, all those kind of areas. At the time, we were a unique region in that we only picked one team to go to the tournament. And it was our first year of competing as a region. Historically, players were selected, went, and then were randomly assigned to teams and would just play with strangers that they met at the tournament. So... I think in an environment like that, you have a lot of possible goal ambiguity. Some people think that they're there to win the tournament. Some people think that the only reason to be there is to get selected for the national team. And we were able to create this feeling of um, like, we are a team, we are representing our region, and it's about we before me. And we had some really special things we did that just stuck with us over time so um at our training camp we (laughs) we had this training camp down in north carolina we had a training session we came in to do a little bit of video and i had the projector set up everything and the girls were kind of coming in and i was like oh guys have you seen this video and um it was on america's got talent it was this young girl grace vanderbeek i think her name was who I don't know if it was America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent. She hopped on. She did this song on a little ukulele. And her song was about no one knowing her name. Um, and I remember played it. And everyone was like, Mark, why are you showing this? And I was like, you can either be honest and say, because it's a cool video. Or you can say, because it's an, like it's a metaphor for who we are. And we just lent into it. And I said, well, guys, like as you see, she went from walking on, being really hesitant, really unsure of who she was performed and you could see in her performance her talent and her ability shine through and she got the golden buzzer and she got to go through to the finals and I think that that could be us no one is looking at us no one's expecting us to do phenomenal things at this tournament but I know that 
we have the ability to do really well. We laid out like a new kind of tactical approach and we just went to the tournament and had fun. We had a little um, stuffed animal. So the, tour- the tournament teams were named after um, previous sites of the Olympics and we were team so I think it was. And I went online and I bought the the mascot from the Sochi Olympics and we had him, he's in my office at work. Uh, he came to everything with us. The girls built an Instagram account for him and someone had a different responsibility for taking care of him every day between the tournament or between the training camp and tournament. These were girls from all over and suddenly we were like a proper team. And the really cool part was we went on, we won every game in the tournament. We won the tournament outright, which nobody would have expected us to do from the region we were from. And we won, they have like also this, they, they call it the Bar Longstreth Award for Sportsmanship. And usually the Sportsmanship Award does not go to the team that wins the tournament. But we were able to win that as well. And I thought that that was a really special thing. But the craziest thing is that three weeks after the tournament was over, I was sitting in my office working away on my computer and the group message that we had lit up again because the girl that we had watched in America's Got Talent won America's Got Talent and the group message just exploded. And these girls who had now gone away to college or were back in school and all that were just like, oh my gosh, she's just like us. Like she was a big champion and all these things. And it was because we just kept buying into this idea that it was about the team. It was about the team. It was about the team. Now, we had great success. The team thoroughly enjoyed the experience. We thoroughly enjoyed it as coaches. But it was just fun. And I went back and I've coached at the tournament a couple of times since. And it's been, it's been more challenging. It's been enjoyable at times. But that was just such a special group of people because we all kind of understood each other. We were able to really get along and we were able to take what could have been real ambiguity in terms of why we were going to tournaments and settle on a specific reason, a specific path. And everyone was able to buy in. And I thought that that was just a really, really special time. And even now, like that was four and a bit years ago, because it was right before some girls who just graduated college went to college And before I left my old job in Virginia, three of the girls that were at the college I worked at had been on that team. And we got together for lunch before I left. And I brought along the little mascot from the tournament and we took a photo and they were like, oh my gosh, it's so good that he's here as well. So it wasn't just a special climate for me. It seems to have been one that they really enjoyed as well. His Instagram account is still active, but he doesn't post anymore. Oh, maybe a renaissance there would be uh, powerful. <laughs> See what reaction. <laughs> um, okay, if you could replay one moment in your career, what would it be and why? If I could replay one moment from my career. Um, years ago, um, when I was working, at, was working for somebody, we played a game. We went to overtime. And in America, when it goes to overtime, the game is crazy. It goes from being 11 aside down to seven aside. And it's sudden, like it's a sudden victory. First goal wins. So playing on a full pitch, seven aside, six field players and a goalkeeper. First person to score win. So this game, we were playing phenomenal hockey. We just weren't scoring. We'd hit the post. We'd 
had about 80 to 90, <laughs> we did about 70 to 80% of the possession. We were out shooting our opponent by an abundance. It was one of those days we were doing everything right. We just couldn't put the ball in goal. And um, we went into overtime and our messaging at halftime was keep doing what you're doing. The goal will come. Messaging at the end of the game going into overtime was keep doing what you're doing. The goal will come. You're doing everything right. It's super. Keep it up. Like, let's just get someone into the circle. Let's, you know, let, let's find a way to finish here. Something along those lines. And after the game, um, my mindset and my brain had been, geez, we were very unlucky there. What happened was our center back was taking a 16, passed it right to the opponent's center forward. She hopped into the circle. First, first shot of the game or fourth shot of the game or something for our opponents just had a super shot, put a bottom corner, they scored. And after the game, I was, we were, you know, we're all disappointed. But in my mind, I was like, that's one of the best games of hockey that we've played in a long time. Really happy with the girls. And my boss at the time was quite, was at a very different end of the spectrum. So the team finished their stretching, they're pulling down. We all came together and... um we didn't huddle as a coaching staff and talk about what we were going to say in that moment before we went in there. And I went in there thinking our conversation was going to be in line with what we had articulated to the team throughout. And we didn't, the conversation was quite negative. It was, you know, I can't believe we lost that. We can't keep having these situations where we throw a game away. And it was very negative towards the team. And then, team were upset and there were tears and all this sort of stuff happened and if I could go back and replay that moment rather than be with the team at the end of the game while they were stretching I would have gone and been with the head coach and talked through how we were going to handle that conversation and advocated for us to bring reason and to really think about what we were going to say going into that conversation because it was one of those moments where and I think this is a challenge for a lot of coaching staffs is that the head coach will want to get what they want to say out there and then they'll look at the assistants and say, do you have anything you want to add? And oftentimes the assistants point is on a totally different set of tracks. And there's two things that can happen. And the assistant can either persevere and say what they want to say, in which case they look like they are either crazy because they're totally disagreeing with the coach or that they're making the coach look bad or the assistant can keep their mouth shut. And neither of those really serve anybody. And that was one of those moments. It was anything you guys want to add? And I was like, no, because what I was going to say was going to be so drastically different to what had just been said. So if I could replay that moment, I would go back in that moment rather than be with the team while they were stretching, would go and talk with the head coach, try and calm them down, try to remind them of what had just happened, you know, how we played some of the best hockey we played all year. Sure, it's disappointing we didn't get the result, but it's a great sign of what's to come. And um, I think that that could have been really powerful for our group because I know what happened was quite powerful and not in a great way. We had some consequences to deal with coming back to it, some repercussions probably to come to deal with in the days that followed. I think there's, um, there's a lot in there. It kind of goes back to your point about being an assistant and a head and a coach and the dynamic in there. Um, you know, there's a lot around how you create this co-coaching environment where you are a team and also not a lot prepares you for that in coaching a sport like hockey where you are generally an individual coach. Uh, that, that for me is, is really interesting, how you are taking that into the environment you're working in now, in the role you're working in now. As obviously, you've not got any matches going on, but 
what what are you doing? What processes are you putting in place, both um, proactively and and retrospectively, reactively? Um, that's going to prevent those situations occurring in your coaching staff. So I think right now, as you said, we're not playing any matches right now. So it's about creating a feeling of comfort and safety in much the same way that I said I rely on um, the culture code to kind of be kind of a bit of a guideline and a guidebook for me in terms of build safety, share vulnerability and establish purpose. We're still doing the same thing within our staff, building safety, empowering people to, to speak up and share their expertise. So whether that's our coaching staff members or our support staff, but then also thanking people when they do disagree with me and when they do share their opinions and their thoughts. So we were dealing with something that seems relatively small the other day and my assistant and I were going through it and she was advocating like, I, I think that the girls are, you know, I think if you did this, they still wouldn't be happy. I think you need to do a little more or whatever the situation was. And I was reflecting on that a couple like that night or the next day. And I was like, that we've only worked together for a couple of months. Like, that's brave. You know, that's, that's a tough thing to do to stand up to your boss and say, Hey, I think you need to do a little different. So I made sure to, you know, the next time we were together, say thank you to articulate why I was saying thank you to encourage them to keep doing that because you know, that's what's going to help us to improve is to be able to be honest and to advocate for our athletes as best we can. But it was um, it was a bit of a surprise when it happened. And obviously, as a head coach, I had to kind of take a deep breath and go, right, like, just shut up, listen, don't start to um, to argue your point of view, just listen to their point of view and actually listen to understand rather than listen to wait your turn. And then as we start to do more and more hockey, it's about continuing to share the, the goal. So make, make sure that we have goal clarity, but then empower our, our path to get there. So while we may know, or while I may be articulating that this is what I want us to achieve this week, come in, sit down, say, right, if we're doing a session today, you know, if I gave you 20, 30 minutes, what would you want to do in those 20, 30 minutes? Can you articulate that to me? Can I... You know, can we talk through those plans? Can you just make sure that you're articulating to me what your coaching points are? And it's not so much to settle me down, but to make sure that they have the confidence to go in and deliver that without me being over their shoulder, watching over them. Because I think that really it's about empowering your staff to feel comfortable to speak up and then making sure to share the opportunity to, to help with planning for those difficult conversations so that when those difficult conversations happen or are about to happen, that they know that they can come and talk about how we're going to react and respond to this situation. I think it's really important for um, a group of athletes that there's a consistency of message and an authenticity of message from all of the members of the coaching staff, because if they find a divergence, then it, it can create a lot of anxiety. Um, because you, you you don't really have faith in how you're being judged. You create this fear of judgment in the players and, and a lack of authenticity within the environment, which, you know, is always uh, very, very difficult um, because it breaks about the boundaries of trust with, with coach and, and athlete and coaching team and team of athletes. Uh, so I think for me, it's, again, it probably comes back down to values. 
every, every interaction that we're, we're about to have as a coaching team, be it on the pitch, um, in the meeting, uh, have video analysis, whatever, uh, after a game, you have to come back and say, right, let, this is what we're going to say. How does that fit in with our value system? Is it contradictory as a group? Do we agree on this? Yes, no, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Then you present. But I think it's really important that, yes, you can disagree with each other, but there is consensus when you're about to meet with the team. So disagreements and divergence within the coaching staff makes it richer, makes your program stronger, makes your message more robust. But it has to happen behind closed doors because then when you present, you have to have a unified front, really, for the players to maintain that trust and um, to, to, to fulfill them, uh, fill them with more confidence in what you're saying. And uh, th that, for me, is fundamental. But that disagreement and that divergence behind closed doors really strengthens that message and all in all creates yeah. a tighter group. And that is almost what I wanted to avoid in that situation that I would go back and do differently was we didn't have that opportunity to have that private discussion. And I thought it would have been atrocious if we disagreed in front of everybody in such an emotionally charged moment. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it undermines the, the, the coaching team, both either you as the head coach or yeah. you as the assistant coach get undermined by the message that's contradictory and it erodes that coach-athlete relationship at that point. Because you you, you modeling you should be modeling the, the team behaviors that you want to see from the athlete. Yeah. Rather than creating a chasm and um two teams, you know, hey, we're on Mark's side, we're on the coach's side, it's we're on the same team. Yeah. So moving on. If you could only pass on one piece of advice to others, what would it be? I think that there is a big difference between listening and waiting your turn and i think we don't spend enough time in the world listening we spend a lot of time waiting our turn in conversation the amount of conversations i've been a part of that might be between three people and i've observed two people three people in the room me and two others and they have a conversation in front of me and I'm listening to both of them and understanding what both of them are saying, but they're talking about two different things and think they're talking about the same thing. So like an example would be on Wednesday, we such and such. And then person one thinks we're talking about the Wednesday that's about to come. And person two thinks we're talking about the Wednesday that's just happened. And they continue down those conversational highways going back and forth, talking about their particular Wednesday and I'm sat in the middle and I usually I'll let it go for a little bit just to see if they figure it out and then say, hey, hang on. You're talking about last Wednesday. You're talking about next Wednesday. Which Wednesday do you actually want us to be talking about in this moment? And I think it's because people will hear the, the key buzzwords of the conversation, access their brain, find the bits of information that they really want to get across and share with people rather than sit, listen consider their response and share their actual response to what's being said. So rather than just almost skim reading, listen so that you hear the full content process respond. And um, I don't know who it was. There was some, someone said, you know, you've got one mouth and two ears. There's a reason for that. You should listen twice as much as you talk. Right. So uh, who has been influential 
in the development. That's a perfect example of you just having your pre-prepared response to what I was going to say, no matter what, there is no process. No, I listened listened intently. I thought your point was excellent and required no further communication. So moving on. Okay. So who has been influential in the development of your career? It's been a couple of people who've been phenomenal. And I've been really lucky that through the world of hockey, I've been able to meet and talk to some wonderful people. Um, one of the most important people in my career has been a guy called Mick McKinnon, who is um, currently, he teaches at a school in Dublin and is an assistant coach to um, the Irish women's national team. But when I was, 21 like I said I came over to the US for a summer I came back from the summer and at the time Mick was leading the club I was playing for Railway Union he was coaching their their women's team and he was also and is still one of Hockey Ireland's main coach educators so he nudged someone and said get that guy in there to help with the women's teams and then I was blessed that he was someone who enjoyed talking about hockey at that time. So I could go to him almost on a weekly basis and say, Hey, you know, I'm thinking of doing this. I'm thinking of doing that. What do you think? And he really took me under his wing back. This is 10, 11 years ago at this stage. And what's been really phenomenal about Mick um, is that despite my leaving the club that we were both working at him, no longer working there, me moving to a new continent, me working in a ton of different coaching settings. He's he's always been there. So over lockdown, um, just like a lot of people I was in a, you know, we really using the opportunity to stay connected to friends of mine around the world. And a bunch of us would get together once a week, me and some of my friends back in Ireland, and we just talk about hockey. And then one week Mick came in and, and joined us on zoom and, chatted hockey with us for an hour or two and it was just phenomenal but this guy who I'd say I've seen him in person in the last four years three times at most but we catch up as as often as we can he uh he'll text me anything he thinks is worthy of making fun of me about and keeps me grounded but over my career in coaching so far there have been moments that have been really really difficult and I think it's the people who will stand up and help you in those moments that are the people that really make the biggest impact. So he's been phenomenal. In the last couple of years, I've been lucky to work with some great people, both when within my different jobs and colleges over here and working for USA Field Hockey as a junior national team coach and a coach educator. But I think Mick has probably been the most influential person in my career because he's also an incredibly creative thinker. And it's meant that I have someone who will call me on my call me on my bullshit and catch me out if I say something that isn't quite right, but also keeps me thinking about things creatively to prevent me stagnating, I guess. So when I was home over Christmas, which was when you and I met, Will, um, at one stage during a session, I just went out and watched it and rather than just watch him coach the like the, the group of senior national team players he was coaching at some point he came over and was picking like asking me questions to make sure that I was paying enough attention you know he's been consciously in my life as like a role model and a um uh a testing block i guess like he will you know 
in much the same way that when you and I chat and you don't let me slide if I say something that you disagree with, he'll do the same thing, but in a lot. Um, it's been going on for such a long period of time that he's been a real impact on my growth as a coach, but also as a person, you know, as he's, um, as he's moved through different phases of life ahead of me and having kids, all those kinds of things. It's given me kind of a glimpse into what um, trying to balance hockey and a real life would look like long-term. What, what have you taken from, from him as a mentor? What have you taken and actually implemented into your own practice? Oh, so much. I think if you were to come and watch a training session of mine, there'd probably be one or two thing, things that you would see in a training session if you knew Mick. Because that's a Mick thing or that's a Mick such and such or that's a phrase that he's used. Um, so there's been a lot of direct stealing, but also the the underpinning kind of approach to coaching has definitely been influenced by him because part of his role was that he was the lead coach educator when I did my level two in Irish hockey. And then he was my assessor when I did my level two. So he was constantly kind of chopping me to make sure I was moving in the right direction to progress through my, my development as a coach. So rather than be focused on a particular set of tactics, he was encouraging me to think about what are the principles of how I would like my teams to play, how, um, how can we create effective learning sessions and how can we be creative in our thought processes to really get the most out of developing players. So some of the things that he did that I thought were phenomenal is he was able to develop a team when he worked with the women's club that we were both working with railway and that was dominant, but was continuing to develop. And I think that's probably been the most impactful thing for me is that like growth doesn't stop. So at one stage, his teams were getting to such a level of understanding of how they played together that positions stopped mattering. You know, you had, I think in his front six, total free interchange. And then at times it would be a little bit more constrained that the center mid might stay as the center mid. And this was 10, 11 years ago. And these are things that, like, to go back to our point earlier about things being cyclical, I know um, I remember reading a paper that Tracy Bellman wrote in the early 2000s about trying to get to the world. And I know that if you watch modern hockey now, you're going to see a lot of inter interchange of positions. But for me, coming from a small hockey nation, I hadn't seen this level of flexibility and interchange. So it was really cool to see someone pushing the boundaries of what I thought was possible within hockey. Um, but doing it in a way that was still engaging, enjoyable, and fun while also being at a high performance standard. So he was able to get more out of players than the coaches who came before or after him because the environment was so special, but he was able to be himself. And we would get into all sorts of debates about, um, you know, what your role on the sideline is as a coach, how much should you be interacting with the umpires, all these kind of bits and pieces that a lot of people don't think about. And at the time I was 21, 22. And you know, as I got a little older, I got a little braver and I would challenge him on more things. And he put me quietly back into my box. <laughs> then, uh, but it didn't really beneficial to have someone fulfilling that role in my career. Yeah, I think it's it's important to constantly find constantly find challenge to to break mm. the dogma that you create as a coach. You know, you see 
coaches in isolation do create their own sort of mantras and blah, blah, blah. And we're all guilty of it at times. I think it's really key to find someone to actually go, why? What about this? What about that? And just sit there and pick you apart for a bit. And it can be a very uh, difficult challenge, depending on how it's done. Again, it's like that whole coach-athlete relationship. If there's a lack of trust there or if there's a worry of judgment and consequence to judgment, it can be really difficult. But if it's done in the right Mm. way, it can be so transformative. I've been really lucky to have a few people who, you know, some have cut it, cut you, and made you bleed out for a sustained period of time. Others maybe nudge or massage. But there's different ways, obviously, to do it. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. But it's so important to find that challenge of what you're doing to really disrupt your dogma. I think you're you know, very fortunate to have someone like that who's made a commitment to you in the long term. It's been phenomenal. And like, I think when you find those people, it's incredibly important to express your appreciation to. So some of the other people for me have been in the last couple of years, Craig Parnham and Phil Edwards within USA Field Hockey, because over the last couple of years, I was doing my master's and then obviously being exposed to a lot of pedagogy and research I was my brain was exploding and having people to talk through that stuff and being able to speak to somebody who you know has been to a number of Olympics and as a player and a coach is a a special support to be able to have but one of the things I'm trying I've tried to do consciously over the last couple months is just reach out to those people and just say thank you because in a lot of ways we don't get where we are on our own and I think when people fulfill those kinds of roles for you they often do it because it's just what they think is the right thing to do. You know, it's, it's being a good human. And because they don't do it with any search for appreciation, there's oftentimes a lack of feeling that they need it. But I think it's really important to share your appreciation to people who fulfill those kind of roles for you. Oh, absolutely. And that's, you know, in coaching, we are standing on the shoulders of giants as, as individuals. Those giants may be just giant to us. They might be our own personal giants. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are always those building blocks and those um, experiences and interactions with special people that transform who, uh, who you are as a practitioner. All right, last one. Can you summarise the key points of your philosophy or approach? And have there been any key moments that have helped shape it? Yeah, so my philosophy is four words. It's you win with people. And it's, it is that because um, it's not about me, you, it's about you winning. I think to ignore the fact that there are winners and losers in sport is foolish, but also I think to understand that there is a broader term of win, you know, within, within sport, you grow and you learn life lessons and you can go on and find success in life, especially when you leave a collegiate environment like this. So winning may not necessarily just be, the game at the weekend. It could be the, your growth, your long-term success. You win with, so you don't do it alone. There's always people that go on that journey with you and it's important to recognize and reflect and appreciate those people, but you do it with people. And I think it's the quality of people that you have in your environment is so much more important than anything else. So for me, philosophy is summed up in those four words. You win with people. Um, and I think some of the big things that have helped that become so apparent to me or um, 
when I worked at William and Mary, we had some really powerful and special moments um, where we were a team that was on the rise. So we were kind of a middle of the road team. When I got there, we were in the forties out of about 77, 78 teams in the national rankings in, in the U S and we finished as a top 20 team having made history, won their first conference championship, um, having gone to the NCAA tournament, having played in a number of like championship finals, but none of it was mine. Like it, it's, I say when I got there, because that was just the opportunity I had to work there. And it wasn't down, especially to me in any way that, that we did those things. But the things that stick with me are not that moment that we win a championship. It's some of those really special moments that I had with different individuals. We had a girl who one day I was trying to figure out a research paper and she swung by my office and was explaining to me what the statistical breakdown of the numbers in the research paper meant and was drawing on the whiteboard the bell curve and what standard deviation meant and all these things. And I remember just sitting there being like, wow, how cool is it that I get to work with a place where someone younger than me is able to explain this stuff to me, stuff that it makes total sense to her as an undergraduate. And here I am as an adult, like doing my master's being like, I have no idea what this word means or like what this is. And that experience was really special. Our, we had a number of big, big wins um, where we knocked off teams that were theoretically seen as being far superior to us. But rather than it being about the goal or about the game, there's always a moment underpinning that about an individual that was just really special. So, for example, last year we beat um, the University of Louisville, who at the time were ranked fourth or fifth in the country, and we were ranked about 18 or 20 or so. So it was a game that was going to be a close game, but on paper, I think everyone was expecting Louisville to be the winners. And we went out, we beat them in overtime. And the things that stick with me are that one of the girls who wasn't able to play that year because of some eligibility issues was standing to my left and then saw that a photographer was going to take photos of the, the people on the bench when we won a penalty corner. So she snuck over to the right. We won the penalty corner, didn't score. She stayed on the right. And now I have a photo from when we did score and when the girls rushed the field. And I, I, my eyes get drawn to her because she had gone through such a challenge in the past 12 months. And to see her joy and her teammates succeeding and to see her be like, I want to be a part of this moment when it happens and get swept up in it was really cool. Now, like the goal itself came from other moments of like real selflessness. We had a player who, again, we were in overtime. So it was six aside plus goalkeeper on the pitch. And this girl comes running back and looks at me and goes, I need a rest. So she came off, her little sister went on and somebody else went on up front. And those two players combined to score the goal. And afterwards, my mind was drawn to celebrate the girl who had been unselfish and said, I need a rest because she had done everything she needed to do to get us to that point of the game and knew that, her being on the sideline was probably going to help us to win the game because she was so physically fatigued. But then her response was to poke fun at that and go, geez, guys, like, see, Mark's even saying we can't win with me on the pitch. So it was still a really special moment of joy and celebration. But it wasn't the moment that won the game. You know, it was it was the people that we we did those things with. And when I reflect on my time in coaching in this country, it's, 
I don't really remember too many games, but I remember the people and I remember some of those really special moments that we shared. That was very nice. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure as ever talking with you. Some great... Uh, Likewise. Yeah, some great insight into what you're dealing with at the moment and what's brought you to this point. So that was fantastic. And hopefully we'll catch up soon. All right. So thanks to Mark for giving his time up. I always enjoy talking to him. We always have a good laugh. I hope you found his insight really, really great. It was a good in-depth and very honest interview. Stay tuned for more Left Field Thinking. See you soon. I can't believe, by the way, you have to train in face masks. It's a bit different. Um, <laughs> not only are we in masks, we're also required to be socially distant. So, oh, during the training? Yeah. So we have to be 10 feet apart all the time. Oh, wow. And then they have to stay in their training pods. So no active defending, no opportunity to like make a tackle. So our first exercise we did was an intercepting game where one player would try to intercept the ball between two people. And if they managed that, they would turn and try to shoot on another goal and someone would have to try and intercept that, mm. which is a game I, I love, but usually after they intercept, it would be a one V one kind of like attack first defense moment, but it became like turn and see if you can push it into that goal and see if she can drop in and recover and, and defend it. Yeah, so, it's become quite false, I think, a lot of the training when you do social distancing. Yeah. Some of the, some of the stuff I've, I've, has been quite fun because it's complete, It's making you completely rethink how you look at training. Like, if you talk about constraints and stuff like that, it's extreme. So I've, we're now training normally but the lap before I came out, a couple of the sessions I did, a couple of the camps I was doing with people, it was like full social distancing, no more than six, including a coach in a training session. And you couldn't pick the ball up. You couldn't move the cones, only the coach could. Which, I mean, if I was a player, I'd love that because it's just an excuse to leave the session before everything's packed away. We've been doing the slow build-up. So initially we were in a phase of just physical training. Yeah. So our strength coach was out like doing this conditioning stuff with them. And then we started to like, if it was a 60 minute session, it became a 50 minute conditioning session and 20 minutes of hockey. So that there was a small increase in, in volume, but just a, a change in what we were doing. And I would have to have everything set up by the end of his 50 minutes. So as he finishes one exercise, I was like, you know, um, when you were a kid, your mom would be coming through cleaning up after you. As soon as he finished in one area of the pitch, I was running through picking up his cones so I could put down new stuff. <laughs> and then the girls had to get from like, as we were going through the session, they'd be in one place and I'd be warming up the keeper at the other end of the pitch, timing something on my phone, yelling down to the stand, <laughs> turning around to come back. It was Good an experience. Some good multitasking there, yeah. It's mm. it's mad, isn't it? But once you get through it, I think the opportunities there to have made connections with people, I think, really, because yeah, appreciate the fact that you've been out of your way to do mad stuff and extra stuff for them. Because the easy thing is just to go, well, let's not do any hockey for a bit. Let's just do some other post-passing. Um, yeah. So I think they'll they'll see that effort, and that'll add to the. Game. It's been really cool to see that being um, reflected in their feedback. Like after a session or something, they'll be like, "Thank you for being, 
you know, thank you for thinking about how to keep us socially distanced during that exercise or like when they go into, you know, sometimes have like a line for people to assemble in the right place. I'm putting a cone down 10 feet apart from each other and so you have to stand at your cone. It's like, um, you should get a job at Asgard. Let's go, cheap, cheap. I was going to say it's like a theme park, but yeah, I guess it could be a grocery store too. <laughs> there were lines on the floor in supermarkets in England. So like, you, yeah. there was someone in front of you, you had to be that far away, which meant if someone was really like, I'm a nightmare shopper, I'm like a proper faffer and get distracted. I must have been so annoying to be behind, like in Tesco, because like, you couldn't overtake. <laughs> so you stuck there waiting for me to decide. Oh man, it must have been terrible when you got to the biscuit aisle or. <laughs> oh my God. That was one of my, one of my best memories was, um, I knew, I knew I was in a bad place when I stood in the biscuit aisle at Sainsbury's. And, no, it wasn't Asda. At Asda, and just burst into tears because I couldn't decide what biscuit to buy. <laughs> that was peak meltdown for me. That was. That would, I, I think that would be a pretty good giveaway. <laughs> There's no pink wafers. I don't want bourbons. Pink wafers are the choice. Oh, pink wafers. I love pink wafers. They go nice with coffee. I would have gone with the bourbon cream. Mm, that was when I was little. I'm more mature now. I go for pink wafers. <laughs> more sophisticated palate. 